Hello, I'm Marianne O'Hotter. And I'm Danielle George. And welcome to This Study Shows. This is a podcast all about how your research matters and has to be shared. But before we bring you a brand new series, though, we thought we needed to bring you a special episode that tackles the biggest topic in the world of science communication. Let's face it, the biggest topic in the world. And that's, of course, the COVID-19 outbreak. Arguably, there isn't a person out there who hasn't been affected by it in some way. And as a result, this is a unique time to see a vast and varied amount of science communication in action internationally. Now, Marianne, we're recording this on the first week of April and we're recording it from our homes. Yes, I'm enjoying your home decor, in fact, on our little video link up. I'm not enjoying yours, actually. Yours is really bland. I can see (laughs) a bland wall and a ladder. That's all I can see. (laughs) I'm sorry. What for you has stood out, you know, in the news or on social media or anything like that? For me, it's the infographics, you know, the, there's some really good sort of heat maps showing the, you know, where the, where the pandemic is and the hotspots, you know, how many, how many cases there are, etc. I think the infographics are really, really good. Well, I worry about infographics, particularly with something like COVID-19, this global pandemic, which is changing so rapidly, because most news websites that I've looked at and Twitter feeds, um, pretty much anywhere, Mm. has a kind of little box where you can find out how many cases are in your area. You can look at those kind of those maps, those those shapes of the curve. Everybody's talking about flattening the curve. Everybody Mm. understands what that means all of a sudden to a greater or lesser extent. But I'm kind of thinking, hang on a minute, if, if... testing is the big question. If we're not doing tests and we say, okay, well, we've got this small number of thousand confirmed cases, that's simply because we haven't tested the other 60 million people in the country. And so I kind of figure that when you look at infographics, it was something that Mona Chalabi, one of our interviewees in the first series, uh, talked about, that Mm. actually if you have these computer-generated infographics where it's very clean and very precise, people assume that these are quantitatively accurate. They are definitive facts. But actually, it, it it covers the statistical randomness of the fact that this particular county or state hasn't got up-to-date reporting figures of deaths or, or new confirmed cases, that this particular area hasn't been testing anybody. So, you know, it's perfectly feasible for you know this country to say, we haven't got any confirmed cases. That doesn't mean they don't have cases. It means that they don't have the figures of confirmed cases. And then we kind of look at a map and we go, oh, look, this is the reality of how things really are. And it isn't. And I worry that when you're talking about something like this, where lives are at stake, it matters even more than ever before that we shouldn't be misled by, like, pictures that look nice, that might Mm. tell us, uh, reassure us, inappropriately or panic us inappropriately. So you've just thrown mine into the bin. Thanks very much. <laughs> I'm really sorry. <laughs> but you know, you're 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 a smart, you know, science educated individual. So I kind of trust that you would look at an infographic and go, I understand that there is inaccuracy written into the data. Yeah, of course. Of course. But I wonder whether now that the whole world is interested in science and health reporting 
not everybody will be quite so um, analytical or critical of the information that they're seeing, particularly because there are a lot of bad people out there who are profiting on, you know, the suffering and the fear and the uncertainty. And they're going, we know the answers. The answer is this. What you should definitely do is buy this special cure for only $10.99. You can get a bulk (laughs) pack as well. So give some to your loving (laughs) friends and family. And you go, wait, 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 wait. Shoving garlic up your nose is not a cure. Please don't do that. (laughs) And definitely don't buy some special gold standard garlic off someone off the internet. My favourite that I've I've seen in, in a similar way, sort of on, on social media, um, inhaling hot air from hairdryers will help with COVID-19. <laughs> You've like, got to really? laugh, don't you? <laughs> like, you have to sort of go through the thought process, right? Why would inhaling hot air from a hairdryer? And then do people actually do it? Probably. I think it's really showing the importance of good science communication and good journalism, though. Well, that is absolutely true. And a piece of research from the Pew Research Centre came out saying that one of the sort of side effects of this is that there's an increase in public trust of scientists and Hmm. science um, institutions because people kind of go, I think they're telling us the truth. They're trying to help us. They are on our side, which is amazing. Yeah. And that sort of brings us to our first guest, Now, our first guest is Michelle Fay-Cortez. Michelle is a health science and medical technology reporter at Bloomberg. Sometimes she presents on the Bloomberg Prognosis podcast, and normally she will report on anything from business, technology and health. But of course, at the moment, she is concentrating a lot more on the health stories. And she's written countless stories since the outbreak of COVID-19 began and is really on the front line of coverage. And she set the scene for us globally. Well, March was really the month where the outbreak exploded in the United States. Of course, the first case happened in mid-January, and then slowly cases were trickling through in February. And then in March is when everything really kind of exploded, and I think it became a wake-up call here in the U.S. for that. Of course, Bloomberg is a as a global news service. So we've been writing about it since the end of December when news first started trickling out of China that there might be something afoot, some kind of a surprising unknown pneumonia that was circling around. I started covering it pretty intensely starting about the early in the second week of January. So it has been um, just this process of watching cases, you know, watching that epi curve rise and fall in different areas of the world and, um, of course, when it started hitting in the U.S., some of our my colleagues started getting much more involved in the coverage. And it's really fast moving, isn't it, Michelle? And, you know, for, for stories like this that are so fast moving, are there things that journalists really need to get right? I mean, is it just the facts at this time are X, but, you know, that might change by tomorrow? Yeah, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. And and we don't even know how much to believe the facts that we have, right? Like we're hearing, you know, in the beginning, we heard about how great all the information was that we were getting from China. You know, certainly they made the sequence of the virus available really, really quickly, especially compared to SARS. And then you started hearing some things about, you know, some doctors who were reporting things early and maybe it wasn't true. And then, and then you, you know, then you get here from WHO and you hear, oh, they, you know, everybody was really forthcoming. And then you get pushed back again. Oh, maybe they weren't, everyone wasn't counting all their cases. And you see that in every country where there's been lack of, um, 
where there's been lack of clarity. And I really think that some of that is just because it's impossible to know a lot of these answers. It's impossible to know when you can't care for everybody who's sick, how many sick people there are. It's impossible to know whether, you know, closing down the country and not allowing people to, to fly in, whether that's going to be a good thing or a bad thing. Um, so everyone is, I, I feel like that probably a lot of people are making the best decisions that they can, worried about what the outcomes are going to be. And in some cases, there's a little bit less clarity in what's being done. I mean, there's always that challenge, isn't there, with science communication, because science is fundamentally iterative. It's about proving <laughs> hypotheses wrong. If you're a good science communicator, you've always got the qualifiers and you're saying, this is what we know so far. This is how we understand it at this point. But the risk with COVID-19 and, and something that causes fear, anxiety, panic even, is that if, if people are accessing information from reliable evidence-based sources, they kind of might come away with a sense of, oh, well, they don't really know. They're not telling me the facts. And they end up somewhere where someone isn't playing uh, as 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 um fair a game but they're kind of coming out with like definitive statements everybody is going to get tested next week or we're going to solve this problem by the end of the month and and the risk isn't there that you're kind of trying to fight misinformation on an unlevel playing field you're totally right there is not a level playing field. And I think that the misinformation, in some cases, there's intentional misinformation that we've been seeing about, you know, people who are promoting kind of questionable, sometimes very questionable therapies and treatments. Hey, here's what you should be eating. Here's a medicine that you can take that will protect you. And in other cases, it's misinformation simply because people don't know. And some people just really believe that, you know, this is this is what I believe that, you know, even things that we all accept, like, you know, social distancing, do you have to be six feet from everyone? Do you have to be, you know, if you're six feet from people, but it's only, you know, more, less than six feet, but it's only five minutes, is that okay? You know, the bottom line is, is we get definitive answers from people, but maybe they don't know exactly whether those definitive answers are truly correct or not. And at some point you have to draw a line. I mean, you can't, every, every sentence we write can't be qualified. Hmm. When you write about it, Michelle, can you deal with just the facts or do you have to appeal to a particular emotion in people to to get your points across? So do you need to appeal to people's fear or hope? Well, I don't think that that you that you have to appeal to any of that. I think that when you're writing stories for for people, when you're writing a story for people that they are going to identify with and and internalize and understand, you, of course, want to get across an emotional point of view as well. That goes back to the, one of the questions you asked me earlier, like, has it changed how I write? So sometimes I write about a, the study, right? Like, here's this study and it has shown, you know, that this this drug does this or it does that. A lot of the stuff that we've done at Bloomberg over the years is informing people in financial markets, for example. And so their interest in this study, you know, like there's a drug coming out from Biogen that it, it's being reviewed for Alzheimer's disease. The question a lot of my readers are interested in is, is that drug going to work or is it not going to work? And what are the sales going to be for Biogen? And the story is sometimes being written for that investor. And the point isn't, you know, is someone with Alzheimer's disease going to read this story and and take something away from it? So it's a little bit of a 
more factually oriented type of a story. With COVID-19, the people who are reading about it are people who are terrified of COVID-19. And certainly when you're writing a story and you're speaking to those people directly, if you include people who have been through it, if you include people who have been grappling with these issues, comments from the doctors and the nurses and people who are on front lines, certainly you get an awful lot more emotion and people are identifying with your story as opposed to just being educated and, and and more learned and more understanding of the topic because of your story. Do you think that's um, taking its toll on on you and your reporters? Because you're suddenly in a world where this isn't a story about something over there. It's not just about the facts or the business or the impact on the stock market. This is something that's going to affect you, your family, your loved ones. Absolutely. I think it's affecting you know everyone in every part of the world, honestly. And I think that some of the reporters are just like some of the people who are facing it all the time. Now, I'm not as much like that because I'm in Minneapolis. And so I am writing a little bit more about the science and talking more to the to the science people about the work that they're doing. You know, to a certain extent, I'm talking to people on the front lines, but I have colleagues in New York and elsewhere who are talking to these doctors and nurses and respiratory therapists all day long, and they ha- they are building sources that call them up, you know, at 11 o'clock midnight once they're off their shift, and they're, you know, hearing the stories of the person who, you know, was holding the hand of the someone who died because they couldn't have any friends and family there, and yet they were feeling terrible that they were spending that time with that person who had no one else, but that meant that they were getting far behind with everyone else who's not getting any of their time. And so, you know, the reporter is being a a vessel, like, you know, supporting that call and hearing it, and it might inform their reporting, but also it it does take a toll. So I do worry about some of my colleagues. Mm. Have you got a, a top tip for science journalists, budding science journalists who are going to write about COVID-19 um, and what's important that they should do or avoid when they're writing about it? Or perhaps journalists who aren't normally science journalists, it's just suddenly they've become science journalists. Uh, yeah, 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 good point, yeah. Yeah, oh, it's that's a tough one, right? I actually... Um, I'm also a, an adjunct professor at Annenberg Media at USC, and so I'm working with some of their uh, student journalists, and that's been really interesting and uh, and such a great experience for me. But, for example, one thing I was talking with someone there, they were going to write a story about COVID-19, and they were talking about the questions that they were going to be asking a, a researcher who's working in this space, a doctor working in this space, and one of the questions was like, what's the difference between a virus and a bacteria? And it's like, well... So my point here is that you should be asking people the questions that are most appropriate for that person. So somebody, you know, a doctor or a researcher who is completely buried in demand for their time and attention and insights should not be going over basic science with anyone at this point, right? Like they need to be focused just on their higher level um, things. So try to target your questions for the right person. The other thing is I would say for myself – um, you know, in this time, it's so difficult. I've, I've been really, really blessed in my career that that scientists and researchers and doctors have been so willing to talk to me about what they do. They're passionate about it, and they're willing to spend a lot of time and effort, but they're also buried now. So I would say the most important thing is to go back with people and make sure that what you're, what they're telling you that you're correctly understanding. There have been a couple of times this 
with this outbreak even where I've sent Dr. Fauci, a, a, you know, a couple of lines like, this is what I heard you say. I just want to make sure that that was correct. And the message was call me immediately because guess what? It was not correct. But, um, <laughs> you know, that's most of them are willing to do that. I mean, certainly we don't ever send back anything like, you know, quote approval, anything like that. But if you're not sure that what you're saying is 100% correct, that's your obligation to yourself and to your readers and to your sources that you go back and make sure that you have that right because this is so quickly moving. People are building off what they're reading from and hearing from other people. So you really do need to put that emphasis on your own self to get it right the first time out. Yeah. What challenging and, I I don't know, can I say exciting journalistic times? That's a bad word, isn't it? Well, it is terrible. It's so terrible because it is such an incredibly great story. But it's such a great story because it is so terrible for our entire world. Mm. So, yeah. I mean, going back to the point of, you know, do I worry about my colleagues who are writing about this? Um, yeah, I do. I worry about them and I worry about this whole idea of, of um, I mean, my God, I've never been so busy and, and so um, – I feel like I'm, I don't know if making a difference is the right terminology. That's certainly a little bit more elevated than what I'm doing. But I do feel like, you know, as we talked about earlier, a lot of people are interested in it. A lot of people are reading it. I feel like I'm connecting with a lot of people more than normal. But it is on a very worrisome and sad topic. So it's tough. Keep up the good work, Michelle. Stay safe. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Great work. Yeah, thanks, you guys. I appreciate it. How much do you think that science reporters have a responsibility to set the tone? And how much do you think they're kind of, they ought to be reaching out to the readers who may be panicking, worrying, being too flippant about the the actual risk? Mm. I I think they've got a a real balancing act to do between, you know, they, they have to present the facts. And, you know, the facts are in this particular story are quite depressing, really. And so how do you make sure that your readers are not thoroughly depressed by reading your stories? So, and I think this is something Michelle does very well. She seems to sort of have that that really good balance between giving the absolute facts, but then trying to keep the positive emotional responses to it up rather than trying to, to have all the sort of negative, apocalyptic type responses. I heard a really interesting panel discussion um, and Caroline Chen, who's the health reporter at ProPublica, said that one of the things that she thinks is really important is that you talk about the 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 data in ways that people can care about. So you don't talk about cases, you talk about the number of people affected or infected by COVID-19, that you talk about not necessarily the number of ventilators, you talk about the number of people who will be able to have access to a ventilator when they, if and when they need it. And I think that's probably quite important because as this goes on, the novelty of it may well wear off, but people still need the information. They still need to be able to engage with the information. And we do that fundamentally as people first. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the sort of journalism that that really appeals to me is the 
the ones that that deal with just the facts. And I know that that really doesn't appeal to my sisters. They they want to know much more about the the people side, the emotional side, and and I think for something like COVID nineteen and reporting on it, that's why it's really important to have a really wide range of ways of reporting, and they all have to be absolutely steeped in fact. That is sort of the top thing, but the way you report. You need to make sure that you're almost like you're appealing to different people because we're not all the same, are we? Yeah, that's that's a really good point. I wonder if one of the developing threads will be people trying to understand the role of social media, not just in sharing information and changing people's behaviour, but also helping us cope with the challenges of this global pandemic. Mm. Now, Our next interviewee is a researcher who's dedicated himself to mental health and attitudes towards risk and the way people behave when bad things happen. Professor Sir Simon Wesley is the current president of the Royal Society of Medicine here in the UK, and he's also the Regis Chair of Psychiatry at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience at King's College London. How should we understand people's responses to COVID-19? What are the key issues that we need to be thinking about? I mean, if you, if you look back at um, the history of epidemics and pandemics, which obviously go back to the dawn of civilization, you, you know, no two pandemics are ever the same. Everyone says you study one pandemic and you studied one pandemic. And so each are different, but it's always going to be about the, the illness, the disease itself, it's going to be about the people who get it and what they think. And it's also going to be about the kind of states and healthcare systems um, that have been um, involved. And so it's always going to be about those three things. So in this one, we have a slight problem that we don't know as much as we should about this new virus. We, we know it's not Ebola. On the other hand, we know that it's um, more um, dangerous than um, the normal season inf- influenza that we get, although that's actually much more dangerous than, we've, than we think it is. We've kind of learned to live with that. Um, so we have that deficit in knowledge. And the key deficit we have in knowledge at the moment is we do not know how much we actually have in the population. We don't know how many of us are getting this and don't know about it. And I'm particularly interested in this because my wife had this a few weeks ago and was quite ill. And by most uh, accounts, I should also have had it. I definitely haven't clinically. But the question is, have I actually had a subclinical infection? If I have, that's good news for me and good news for everyone else. Um, because it implies that more of us are developing immunity than we think. But that's the single biggest gap in our knowledge at the moment, is we do not know what is the prevalence already in the population. So this is, I mean, this is an intriguing stuff, isn't it? Because we're we're talking now in the, the first week of April um, for for the US, for the UK, we haven't yet reached peak infection. We haven't yet reached that point where the healthcare service either can cope and remains within capacity or can't cope. And there is that sense of this kind of invisible killer amongst us, even though we're all in isolation. Nonetheless, when you step outside, it feels like the world, the air is different, doesn't it? 
well, it doesn't feel like it. It's obviously because it is. Um, and if you look around at the streets at the moment, they are, of course, largely deserted. Um, and we also know from the various polling that goes on that people are feeling increasingly anxious. They weren't at the beginning, by the way. And, and one of the reasons why um, we didn't perhaps start some of the more aggressive public health measures at the time we did was because it was clear that the public didn't share that concern and were thinking of this as like, do you remember swine flu, um, where a great deal of preparation and uh, uh, concern was expressed, but in fact, not that much happened. And people remember that. And, um, you know, it, it, even during swine flu, there's very low uh, cooperation with various public health measures. But this time now, but not originally, now anxiety levels are high and people are cooperating with public health measures. And indeed, I'm absolutely astonished by how fast and swiftly the behavioural change has happened. You, you can see the graphs changing dramatically in a period of a very small number of days. And now we have over 90% of people are cooperating with most of the measures that, that have been announced. Does it feel like it's because it's voluntary quarantine then? And so that, that gives people less distress because they somehow feel still in control of that? rather than it being a restriction of their liberty? Well, uh, undoubtedly. We know that forced quarantine always leads to more problems, both acutely and long-term. Um, and, and there are various reasons for that. So, for example, during the colonial periods, when the British imposed quarantine measures in Africa or in India uh, to combat plague or cholera, these were very badly received, partly because people didn't understand why they didn't, you know, they, they weren't, there wasn't any messaging that went on. It was just, you know, notices and bans and, and blocks and things put on. And they didn't understand why. And second, because they didn't trust the colonial authorities. So that would often lead to either highly unsuccessful quarantine or civil disturbance. But at the moment, we have two things. Number one, information is pretty clear and being shared very well, I think we, we would agree. Most of us know what's going on and we know what the risks are. And second, you're quite right, it has not been coerced. Um, it has been by and large voluntary and also the messaging about appealing to altruism. Um, you, you, may be, you may think you're okay and perhaps you will be, but think about your sister-in-law's baby, your grandmother or the person you know next door with, with a leukemia. Uh, and appeals to altruism we know are more successful than using the power of the state. Although we have those powers, uh, we haven't really even touched on them at all and one hopes that we won't. Do you think there's a risk that as this goes on, the quirky novelty very quickly wears off, then people's mental resilience starts to be tested and that's perhaps when we have to change the communication messages to something that is a little bit more weighty rather than voluntary and altruistic and we're all in this together? Well, I think, I think the messages have been very weighty indeed. Um, you know, this is to save lives and save the NHS. That's pretty weighty messaging. Um, but your, your first question is what will happen as time goes on is a one that we just simply don't know. Um, we've not had this before um, in this country. When did we last have large-scale quarantines was in, in the 19th century, and many of them went very badly. I think we're in uncharted territory. People say, well, you know, we survived the war, and you sat as an example of a kind of collective action. But, of course, that was terribly different. Um, 
The threat was different. And also during that time, not only did we not push social distancing, we did the opposite. The pubs remained open, the restaurants remained open, cinema, theatres, with considerable loss of life during the Blitz um, when people were in a theatre which was hit by a bomb um, in the middle of a matinee. You know, a lot of people died, including Jack Buchanan, I think, a very famous singer. Um, So it was still considered uh, more sensible to allow people to not socially distance and build, you know, resilience than it was uh, not to. So, and then people talk about curfews, but curfews are very different things, rarely work again, and are usually done to in times of civil disorder. And we're not in a time of civil disorder. So we don't know how long this can be tolerated for. How do you think the the UK media is doing in terms of um, communicating all of the information and the science about COVID-19 to the public. And how does it compare to the US? One thing I would comment on is the importance of clear messaging given by all of those in charge of the public health and, and the government. Um, what you know, people are saying, how long is this going to go on for? And I think here we've done the right thing and not given a date because that falls under the, one of the three things that communicators must never do, which is give false reassurance. Because if you give a date and then you break it, you get a demoralization uh, and uh, all sorts of things. And, and we've shown that in our studies of the armed forces when they deploy to Iraq and Afghanistan. If you tell them they're going there for six months, make sure you keep it. And, you know, they cope by and large pretty well. But if you suddenly add another month to it, you get an increase in the rate of, of traumatic stress, alcohol and issues like that. Whereas I think over here, I think people have been honest. They've said, look, we don't know. You said um, there were three three things that risk communication needs to focus on. What are those three things? Well, I mean, the first purpose of risk communication is to give clear and accurate information. That's number one. Uh, but the three messages we give when we occasionally ask to, to you know, help in, in risk communication is, number one, do not give false reassurance. Number two, never, ever, ever tell the population not to panic. And number three, <laughs> I mean, there are good reasons for that, that those... Um, Those who are panicking aren't listening. Those who haven't panicked think maybe this is worse than I think, perhaps I should. Uh, And finally, most of the people don't panic for most of the time anyway. And then the third thing is as quickly as you can get the doctors and scientists on because that's who the public want to listen to and those are the ones with the highest trust rating. So those are the kind of three golden rules and and I think in general that's been done pretty well. If we had some young researchers, you know, they haven't got a lot of training but they might be asked to communicate with either the public or with media on this, what would, if you've got a top tip for someone who's not experienced in communicating their science but may get asked during this time? Rehearse. When we were starting out in not this game but in other games, you know, early in my career, um, we found practicing and role play very, very good. And the other thing is to all research is always part of a team these days. I, you know, the idea of the single-handed person, you know, with the laboratory in the cellar finding the cause of this and the other doesn't happen. And what we used to also do is coordinate what we wanted to say and give everyone in the team a card with the three things that we want to get over. And then everyone to, you know, stay on message, as it were, and make sure you get these three things in. What are the three things you want to say in three minutes? And, um, uh, and stick with that. Uh, and so preparation, though, is, is all important and role play. And then, and also remind people, by the way, it's fun. And, and, and the other thing, the other advice I always give is, if you can, always go live. 
I find live much easier. If you mess it up, it's your fault. You can speak quicker. Um, you can also get in your sub-clauses because no research is definitive. You almost invariably want to end your sentence with, but we need to do more, we need this, the other. If you do a pre-record, that will get cut out and you will end up being rather more uh, direct and than you would actually wish to have been because very few things are clear-cut. So I do tell people, if you're unsure, go live. But most people get worried about live. But um, I think that's sometimes not, not, not true. Oh, good. Top tips. Yeah. Yeah. Keep the power in your hands. Well, yeah, you've got to prepare, though. I mean, if you don't prepare, then you're an idiot. I'm heartened from, from speaking to both Michelle and Simon that mm. there are good people doing good work at the moment when we need them to do it most. And the, for those of us who are forced to sit at home, twiddle our thumbs to some extent, it's heartening to know that the people who can be doing productive work to help us through this crisis are there and they are doing the best work they can. Yeah, absolutely. I think both Michelle and Simon, for me, show that there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach here, is there? You know, it's there has to be many ways of communicating the facts that will appeal to the, the general public. Um, and that that is so important at the minute. Something like COVID-19 will come and go, but there's always going to be another COVID-19 in the future. And I, I think the next generation of science communicators and science researchers must be prepared, both you know in their laboratories, but also on the national or international stage to be able to respond to that. And so this communication and effective communication is so important, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that journalists are being pushed into the role of becoming science journalists and that researchers who normally don't have to field that many questions about what's going on and, and why they understand it in the way that they do, are suddenly being asked those questions by their loved ones, by their communities, by journalists reaching out for a, for a quote or a story or some kind of background information. All of a sudden, there are new people having to step up and do good, really important that it's accurate science communication. So if you're out there and you're listening to this, keep up the good work, look after each other. And I think also take time to acknowledge that your work is important, but it's also really hard. I mean, this is not your average beat. This is tough stuff for everybody. So take care of yourselves mentally as well. Yeah, absolutely. In this era, you know, we need scientists whom the public can trust more than ever. So do, do look after yourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, what have we got to look forward to in <sighs> series two of this study shows? We've got some great people. We have, we really do. Um, so so from the um, relative safety of our, our front rooms, uh, we have got an amazing lineup of science communicators, researchers who are doing new and exciting things to reach new and interested audiences and the people who are holding us to account for how we tell those stories, whether that's how you deliver the bad news of climate change and actually empower people to take action, whether that's how you get a bunch of grade school kids to Skype a scientist, or whether that's how to convince a PhD candidate to talk about their research 
down the pub. <laughs> yes, and the role of citizen scientists as well and, and what their role is in communicating their research um, and communicating really controversial topics as well, from climate change to human evolution. Um, and, and my favourite is um, a psychologist on why the facts just aren't enough. Oh, it's about hope, it's about optimism, it's about trust, it's about accuracy. We have the emotional range covered. So tune in in a few weeks' time and we will drop a whole new series of This Study Shows. Stay safe. Stay well. Stay home. <laughs> <laughs>